I'm Terry Teachout, drama critic for The Wall Street Journal. I'm Elizabeth Vincentelli, and I write for The New York Times, The New Yorker, and Newsday. And I'm Peter Marks, drama critic for The Washington Post. Welcome to episode 49 of Three on the Isle, a pandemic-era podcast from New York about theater in America, hosted by American Theater Magazine, a publication of the Theater Communications Group. We greet you from the brave new world of coronavirus. Usually, we all get together at a studio in midtown Manhattan to record. But this time, each of us is in a separate place, including Erica Wong, our producer, I'm speaking, to, yeah, I'm speaking to you from the living room of my apartment in Washington Heights. And I'm in the uh, living room of my apartment in uh, Park Slope, Brooklyn. And in, I'm in my office in, uh, uh, in my apartment uh, near Wall Street in Lower Manhattan. We thought we would share with you on this podcast uh, some notes about how each of us is dealing with the fact that here we are, a bunch of people who write about live theater in New York, and there isn't any. Um, we're each confronting it in different ways. We found out different things. Um, and uh, we hope that it might be of interest to you to find out what we're up to and what we've learned. Elizabeth, why don't you uh, uh, set the ball rolling? Well, I it's been very odd because it uh, hit me uh Ten couple of weeks ago, uh, that it had been literally decades since I had been home uh, several nights in a row, um, and it felt very disorienting at first. Uh, I mean, now I'm a little bit more used to it, but it it was very very odd to not take off and go to the theater at night or show or you know concert or something. Uh, that that's been the oddest thing for me to adjust to this thing where there's no difference between Monday, mm. Friday, Saturday evening, matinee. Uh, it's, it's become a blur in a in a way. So I try to. I, I hasten to say that I get dressed in the morning. <laughs> I, do, <laughs> I do not spend the day in my pajamas, um, and uh, we've been trying to eat healthy. Uh, you know. Uh, notwithstanding Ish. the occasional frozen white castle, <laughs> which I am partial to. But <laughs> other than that, um, it's been kind of weird. Uh, and I've been watching, the, you know, the theater I've been watching online actually has not been entire shows, but I've been watching a lot of clips on YouTube. Uh, a lot of clips from performances, from musicals uh, and, and things like that. That has been keeping me busy, actually. I've done a lot of that. But what have you guys been doing? Well, uh, as soon as the... The as soon as Broadway was closed down, um, uh, I discussed with my editors at the Journal what should I, what should the other critics who review performances, do instead of doing what we usually do. And the first thing I thought uh, I could do for my Friday column was to start following webcasts of theater across the country. Uh, nobody's really keeping proper track of that. And as far as I know, uh, well, Lily, Lily in San Francisco is reviewing some stuff there. But uh, beginning uh, this week, I am going to be reviewing web pay-per-view webcasts of theater that are generally available to everybody. Uh, uh, everybody was caught flat-footed. Uh, the unions uh, had to be brought on board with this. Everything had to be negotiated. But there are now several companies that have either rolled out webcasts or are about to do so. Um, the very first one was Rubber City Theater of Akron, Ohio, which actually improvised a free single camera live webcast of Love's Labor's Lost 
uh, last week on Facebook. And then theaters, Theater Wit in Chicago was the first to live stream a pay-per-view uh, performance. It's of Mike Lou's play Teenage Dick, which is a high school version of Richard III. Uh, now, yes. Oh, which I saw um, at the public when it was in New York. It's a wonderful play. It's really funny and very smart, yeah. Yeah, I really liked it. It's also run at the Donmar Warehouse, I believe. Mm, yes. Uh, and now the larger companies, um, basically what happened is suddenly they're starting to close theaters down. Uh, several major companies have shows in preview. Uh, most theater companies are prepared to record archival video of performances, but that's just one camera. So several of them immediately set up to record their final public previews with a more sophisticated setup. Uh, California's Berkeley Repertory Theater has already webcast two shows, uh, uh, Culture Class Still in America and School Girls or the African Mean Girls Play. In New York, Rattlestick Playwrights is going to be live streaming Rendar Santiago's The Siblings Play. Uh, the Alley Theater is about to start live streaming a tape performance of a new stage adaptation of George Orwell's 1984. Uh, Princeton's McCarter Theater uh, tells me that they have a webcast of Sleuth in the pipeline. The biggest venture so far uh, is in Stanton, Virginia, where American Shakespeare Center, which has already live-streamed one show, is planning to tape most of its spring productions for pay-per-view webcasting. Um, the most ambitious webcast that I have seen to date, which I have reviewed, uh, originates at San Francisco's American Conservatory Theater. They were just about to open the West Coast premiere of Lydiard Diamond's Tony Snow, Tony Stone, uh, which of course was performed by the Roundabout at its Off-Broadway house last year uh, when uh, the theaters were shut down. But ACT was able to tape and edit a preview performance uh, that is, uh, well, it, it will very shortly be available. I think it's available now for online viewing. I'm not sure when this podcast is going to drop. So I watched that, and I was very, very impressed. I saw and reviewed the Off-Broadway production, uh, which is in a much smaller house than ACT's main stage theater. Um, and they did it with two cameras, which absolutely astonished me. Uh, whenever you uh, watch a sitcom that says this was taped before a live audience, it is being taped with three cameras which for this kind of setup is usually regarded as the minimum to get a watchable program. I didn't know that this was being taped with only two cameras when I saw it. And I assumed it was being done with three. Uh, uh, the production comes through very clearly. Uh, it's been, the set has been upscaled just a little bit because the, the theater is more than twice as large as the original one. But having seen the show in a small house, uh, I was really impressed by how clearly it came through uh, as a viewing experience, a home viewing experience. And I think that uh, other companies that are thinking about doing this but are afraid it's just going to cost too much, they're going to need a three-camera setup. I mean, there are all sorts of reasons not to do this. They should take a look at this Tony Stone because they're going to realize we could do that too. And they need to do it if they want to have progress. If they want to have product, they need to do this. Well, I, I'm, I'm going to interject uh, very something very quickly here. Um, I, I did a, a piece of the Times uh, about this, uh, this, this initiatives uh, last week. So I talked 
about the Berkeley Rep wine and the ACT wine. And one of the things that uh, came up a lot is that we're in really uncharted legal territory there. Because uh, I think I've had a lot of people ask me, well, why, why don't theater companies stream more of their stuff? Well, there's a lot of legal issues uh, pertaining right. with intellectual property and copyrights. Uh, and, of, and then, you know, the, the unions, actors' equity, there's a lot of contracts that to protect uh, intellectual property and to protect also the essence of life theater uh, really restri- restrict these initiatives. And, and all of them are for limited time only. Uh, they tend to be limited right. to ticket holders, or you have to buy a ticket. So it's not like they're. It's not like you can go to YouTube and just click and, and see them. But one right. of the, the in- general the general rule that Equity is enforcing is that you can sell as many tickets as you have seats in the house for the mm-hmm. total number of performances. Uh, some companies are only making. Uh, tickets available to existing ticket holders, but pretty much everybody is trying to, to especially at ACT, where that's a really big house, uh, they're trying to sell to uh, um, anybody who can uh, get in uh, and, and uh, get the password. Equity has issued a, a general waiver, isn't that right, that's permitting uh, these ventures to take place on a case-by-case basis. and. Um, I know that Dramatist Play Service is being really uh, cooperative about this as well. Um, I think everybody realizes, I mean, after coronavirus, the world's going to be different. And whereas in England, most of the major theaters already had the infrastructure for this kind of taping, nobody has it here. As a result, nobody on Broadway, unless you know somebody, I, something I don't, Elizabeth, nobody on Broadway is attempting to tape anything. Let me, um, can I Can I jump in with a bit of elitist aesthetic uh, dissension? Yeah. Um, <laughs> sure. I, I went to the, the final uh, performance of Sanctuary City, which is Martina Mayock's wonderful play. I hadn't seen it. It was, it was, they were taping it for just this purpose. And it was a very moving experience. And that is the way I, I'm just, that's the way I see theater. I have a real problem and I've tried to watch a few things already online. And the, the exaggerated theatricality of the stage, especially when it's not been sort of like really thought out for, um, another medium, uh, quickly becomes for me difficult to uh, digest. I found myself wandering away from it as the emotional truth seemed less and less uh, accessible. It feels like it's meant for a hall in which these uh, these activities uh, are designed both in terms of uh, physically, in terms of what the actors are doing, and even structurally in terms of the plays. So I, so I understand what's going on. I, I understand why theaters are trying to uh, keep theater goers happy who have tickets who won't return ask for refunds and can watch the shows. It's not for me a long term solution to as an alternative to theater. It's not theater anymore when it's on film. It's something other. And I, well, I, I think do- it's a it's a different experience. And um, different shows will work better than others. Small cast shows will work better than large ones. Small house shows will work better than large ones. Um, but the more that uh, there's going to be a learning curve uh, and uh, 
I don't know how much of it is going to be able to take place now that all of the casts are dispersed, uh, but certainly the experience at Stanton at American Shakespeare Center is going to tell us. Well, it's also well, it's also when you have people and a God love them, I salute them all who are used to filming for archival purposes and not really artistic ones. They don't really have what from what I'm seeing the dexterity with the camera to make it interesting enough to follow a long production through to the end in ways that film does. You realize that the visual vocabulary we've all inculcated over decades of watching movies and television, uh, when you go back to a more primitive level of watching, you are, it's almost uh, as if you have to excuse so many things and just treat it as the roughest possible way to see something. I don't know how that's sustained over more than a couple of experiences. It becomes, I find, very tiresome. I, I'm i going to say I'm falling a little in the middle on this one. I, this, I don't think this is a viable long-term device. Uh, I think the video, the streaming or video experience is always a second best, at best a second best. Uh, but in the current circumstances, it's better than nothing. I think the better than nothing option is is not a not a small one. Mm-hmm. Um, but I would agree with Peter that in the long term, I don't think it's it's a viable thing, um, and it's not desirable. I'll tell you something. What I am hearing from uh, let's say out of towners is that they're really excited about this. They are excited about getting the opportunity to see things that they could never hope to see. Uh, they hope that there's going to be more of this. And you know, as I say, the, the first one that I've seen from beginning to end was Tony Stone. And I was startled uh, by the technical quality of the operation, considering you know, they, they said to me, are you sure you want to review this? We were really improvising everything. And I said, look, I'm, I'm not here to uh, uh, give you hell over this. I'm here to report on what it looks like. And the fact that I thought it was a three-camera setup uh, tells me that at least for some people who know what they're doing, they may be able to get a really good-looking product. Uh, the next thing I'm going to see is the Alley's uh, 1984. I'm very excited about that. It's also a small-scale, a small-cast uh, 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 adaptation. And that's a big house, but nevertheless, uh, it's, I, I will be very curious to report on the results. I, I have a feeling... Well, for one thing, we're going to be dealing with the virus for quite some time to come. And I think at the end of that time, uh, those companies that have made the jump and decided to try to make uh, productions available in this way, uh, they may be opening theater up to a new kind of audience that hasn't had access to it before. Not like us, you know. I mean, for us, it's not a luxury. We go to shows routinely, and we know that it's better to be in the house with it. But I must say, I mean, when you can hear the audience reaction, when you are aware watching a taping like this, that you are, in a sense, with the audience uh, well, in the Terry, theater. It's exciting. Are you, are you comfortable? That's, I, I, I appreciate what you're saying. Are you comfortable, though, under these circumstances, if you're saying that you're reviewing these things, are you comfortable with the idea of panning something that you see? Um, you know, given their own, you know, the restrictions and, you know, what you understand emotionally, the sympathy you might feel for what the endeavor entails, uh, how do you pan a show under these circumstances or say it's not worth looking at? Yeah, the answer is not yet. 
and I'm choosing very carefully what I'm going to write about. Uh, with with an eye to uh, is it a suit is it suitable for the purpose? Uh, do I think these people have any kind of history that's going to allow them to do it well? Uh, at this point, no, I'm not going to blitz somebody who does a, a a webcast, and it just doesn't work. What I want to do with these reviews is to try to tell people what is working why it works and suggest that they look at it. Yeah, because I mean it's like the 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 the, the blowback you'll get if you ha if you say, you know, this is a bore or you know, not in those words obviously, is well, it was not meant to be seen in this form. <laughs> you know what I mean? So the question right. becomes what is and I'll deserve what it. is so what is it? You know, if it was not meant to be seen, why are we seeing it? That's I guess, you know, I mean I I'm trying to be as, you know, provocative here as I possibly can, because I, I honestly yeah. do think that they, I completely sympathize the, with the effort, the opportunity to do this and what they're trying to do. But I'm, I'm just wondering about the execution. Well, these are really good questions and they lead naturally to the other thing that I am doing with my Friday review space is I am reviewing older films that are screen versions of important plays of the past whose casts include people from the original stage production. Um, Hollywood has an extremely uneven record with filming plays, but from time to time, and a lot more often than you'd think, I was surprised when I looked into this, uh, I, there are something like a hundred uh, film versions of, of, of seri real seriousness which preserve performances by important actors doing roles that they were known for. Uh, my first column on this subject was about uh, John Cromwell's 1940 adaptation of, uh, of uh, uh, Abe Lincoln in Illinois, the Robert Sherwood play, uh, which preserves the performance of Raymond Massey as Lincoln, which, for which he was known for the rest of his life. And it's, it's a very free adaptation of, this, of the stage play. But Massey's performance comes through with great, great clarity. I'm going to be writing next about uh, William Friedkin's film version of The Boys in the Band, one of the very few commercial films that preserves the entire original ensemble for an important play uh, and is a, quite a remarkable piece of filmmaking. And there's no sense that these people are overacting. Sure, you, you do get overacting. I mean, look at the man who came to dinner and look what Monty Woolley is doing. I mean, he was the original Sheridan Whiteside and he's giving a stage performance on the screen and it jumps right off the screen and lands in your lap. But nevertheless, it tells you something, something interesting, something exciting to find out about what he must have been like. Uh, the Our Town film that, that uh, Sam Wood did in 1940, uh, Frank Craven, the original stage manager, his performance is, pre is preserved in this film. So I thought it would be fun to, to change up between um, these, these film-based pieces and the webcast pieces uh, to give people something to do other than sit at home and wish that they could go to the theater. Got it. Uh, yeah, the response so far has been pretty good. We'll see how it happens. Everything you said, Peter, is right on the mark, and you as well, Elizabeth. Uh, this is inevitably an imperfect venture, but uh, I don't think that's any reason not to do it, not to work on it, not to get better at it. Okay, I, I'm fair enough. So, Peter, tell tell us tell us what you've been up to and what you've learned. Well, um, I have sort of focused the last 
you know, the, since this really sort of became a shutdown for, you know, for the entire theater industry. And as we speak, you know, several Broadway shows have been uh, wiped out, among them Hangmen and Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf. Uh, several seem to be hanging in the uh, in the ether. We're not sure what's going to happen to about nine or ten. I mean, we can presume what's going to happen. But uh, at this point, Broadway is shut down till April 12th. Much of the regional theaters in, in many of the regional theaters in America are closed longer than that. They've announced the suspension of seasons. It's a little different process for um, for the nonprofit sector. So I was curious about what the the impact of all this is. And I spoke to Michael Kaiser, the former. So I've been covering sort of the survival mode uh, aspect of all this. And I spoke to Michael Kaiser the other day, who is the former president of the Kennedy Center, known as a sort of a turnaround artist, making uh, companies that were on the verge of problems like Alvin Ailey and the and Covent Garden in England um, uh, financially more secure. And now he heads a thing called the DeVos Management Institute at uh, the University of Maryland, and they basically are consultants for arts managers and boards of nonprofits around America and, and beyond. And uh, he pointed out, uh, statistically, it's a very dicey world. One of the statistics he told me was that uh, the average uh, museum or th- or arts performing arts company in America has about uh, two months work worth of working capital in their in their pockets. The average uh, orchestra has fifteen days, after which they are they are running on empty. Uh, and we talked about you know how long this can possibly be sustained. He said he's most worried about the middle range of uh, companies. And in the theater world, that uh, applies to companies of about $2 million to $10 million in annual annual budgets, which encompasses most of the major regional, many of the major regional companies around America, some uh, off-Broadway, but some have larger budgets than that, some with much smaller. Uh, He says that the largest companies, the largest institutions, the Lincoln Centers, the Kennedy Centers, uh, and beyond, and the major ones in every city are likely to survive because they've got dedicated donors, people who are committed to keeping them running with very deep pockets themselves. The smaller, too big to fail. Too big to fail in the sense that they've got people who believe in uh, them and will support them in the in their direst hours with the cushion they need, or at least some of the money they need. The smallest companies are used to working in survival mode. The ones that were, you know, have hundred thousand, two hundred, three hundred thousand dollar budgets, they just are scrappy and know that they have to, they have one way of surviving, and that is on their on their uh, wits. So they are. He's less concerned about it. It's the middle ones that have not have that don't have the access to the deep pocket uh, donors, the, the the billionaires and millionaires who sustain who worry about you know getting five thousand to twenty five thousand dollar donations from people in the community who really love them. Those are going to be the hardest hit because those people are going to be harder hit. Uh, the, and and just generally speaking, they have expensive productions. They uh, pay. They have large staffs or, or significant staffs. All the overhead that has to be sustained by a company that has reached a mortgage to pay, mortgages to pay off. Those kind of things uh, become extremely, extremely burdensome when you've got an ongoing artistic venture. Uh, so 
it was an interesting conversation. It was a terrifying conversation because for me, the money quote was uh, his saying that, you know, if this goes on for six months, uh, we are looking at a where every all bets are off and we're going to be looking at an entirely new arts ecology, uh, which tells you something about the shelf life we are, the situation we are in and how they all exist and how much we've taken for granted the survivability of theater companies and, and other performing arts companies in this country for so long. Um, he had some prescriptions for, you know, mitigating the problems, uh, which were, you know, some of them we've already outlined even in terms of donating your tickets and, you know, but really he said the, the bulwark of this for many companies is going to be the level to which they have developed themselves as essential to their communities, the way in which they're thought of as absolutely something people want to see keep functioning and feel it's a part of their daily lives or at least their weekly lives or their monthly lives. So it's an, uh, it's going to be a case by case. He said some are better at this than others. Some companies are just better. And uh, there's, a fr- there's a phrase that I use when lecturing at regional theaters, trust equity. Mm-hmm. It's something that you build up over time with your audience. And once you've got it, you can do unusual work. You can come to them and say, we need money. I mean, they believe in you. Right. But you don't get it right out of the box. It's something that you have he to He said he, one of the things he talked about was not doing safe work coming out of this. He said, you've got to do your, you mm-hmm. know, this, you can't fall back on reliable. You know, this is not what people are going to want coming out of this. You've going to do, you've got to show your best shit, as they say. He didn't say that word. I did. And I think, that, <laughs> and I think that that's, you know, that is absolutely makes sense to me. You know, you're going to want to come out of the dock, you know, out of the, and it's different. You know, this is different than 9-11. 9-11, which is everybody compares it to, you know, after a, the initial shock People wanted to get together and they felt that theater was a rallying point. I remember sitting at Mamma Mia on Broadway and people were <laughs> sobbing <laughs> at Mamma Mia, you know, I mean, because it was just so joyful to be back together. Um, but, you know, coronavirus is about keeping us apart. You know, it's not about there's no way to rally. I mean, that goes back to the web you know, casts, of course. It is a kind of tacit way or a kind of symbolic way for us all to be together or maybe even a, you know, a palpable way in some ways. But, you know, this is good. It's there's something being injected here into the fear uh, reflex of people about being close to other people that's going to have to be worked out. And the way you do that is making it essential to be in that space with a great work of art again. Uh, so I understood what he was saying about the, the the need for that kind of daring. Yeah, Elizabeth. I I I'm a little worried. I mean, I totally agree with what you're saying and about the the need for companies to prove that they are an essential component of a community. But I'm going to speak about New York because this is what I know best. Uh, there's a lot of theater here, mm-hmm. and I think it's going to be a cutthroat competition, it, and I hope it doesn't get ugly, but I think it mm. will, about who's going to survive, who's going to get yeah. limited funds, who's going to be able to to continue, who's going to prove, well, I'm I'm worthy, I, I deserve to st- stick around, give me money, and you right. know, implied not sure, those other guys. Uh, a a there's word a lot we're of, now hearing in a different context, triage. Right, and we're, exactly, and we're going to see a lot of uh, 
of of jostling because there's a lot of companies occupying a, a, occupying a kind of like middle ground, I would say, uh, middle brow, middle ground uh, terrain right now, and it's gonna be it's gonna be bad in there. One of the things it's gonna be one really of the bad. things that Brett Egan, who's the uh, president of this DeVos Institute, by the way, it is funded by Betsy DeVos. This is you know this was a uh, she was a longtime Kennedy board Kennedy Center board member, and it, it does the money for this management institute. I believe the startup at least. I don't know if there's other. Grant, you know, grant makers. But anyway, one of the things that Brett Egan said was, you know, it's uh, what's important also right now is that foundations, the people who fund a lot of the companies you're talking about, Elizabeth, have to relax their guidelines for what the money goes for. I didn't realize how much foundations give money for projects. They don't really give it to you to run your theater. They give it for a specific artistic endeavor. That's what they like to spend their money on. I mean, to give you Mm -hmm. money for those things have to be relaxed because if there's no theater to, you know, uh, if there's no company, no staff, you're not going to put on the project and they've got to start thinking Mm -hmm. about that. And also companies with larger endowments have to change the rules for what they spend their money. Maybe they have to spend down some of the money they got in their pot in their in that they think they're going to need, you know, in 10 years or 15 years and just spend it now. Support artists, you know, find ways to break the rules and make sure this money is going to people who need it. Well, I think also I think a lot of the funders also, because we all know people uh, or rich people like to put their names on things. Right. And I really think they have to switch their focus from putting their name on things and putting their name on people, so to speak. That is operating funds. Not don't fund a building because right now, I mean, seriously, we have enough. Um, You have to fund operating funds. That's where you have to put your money. You have to. Yeah. Put your money on th- on people, not things. That's right. I, you know, I'm writing a piece on a on the same subject for uh, the Weekend Journal, Peter. I sent a draft in to my editor this morning, and he wrote back and said, "This is great, but it's awfully pessimistic." And I said, "Well, Gary, I got nothing to offer you but blood, toil, tears, and sweat." <laughs> I mean, I'm I'm talking to uh, uh, artistic directors and managing directors all over the country. They are laying off staff right and left. They are scared to death. Um, they don't know if they're going to make it. And, I, you know, theater's not going to die. Theater's never going to die. But companies will die. But theaters and, will die. Yeah, that's right. And and ordinary, the, 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 the working stiffs of theater, the actors, the, the directors, the designers, these are, as somebody pointed out, these are members of the gig economy. When there's no show, they're unemployed. And they're scared too. Yeah. Another interesting point was, you know, this issue. I said, you know, I said to Michael Kaiser, how much transparency should we expect at this point from theaters? You know, I am frustrated by the kind of how closely held information is about finances in the arts. I mean, often there's a like a real embarrassment, reluctance, hesitance, nervousness, anxiety about telling us what the money situation really is. Uh, just just in the general, uh, it, it, there's just very little disclosure. And he said, he sort of, you know, he said, yes, we need, to, they need to be clearer about what the situation is. There, there can be more of that. He said, but also there's a real danger in the arts to, to sound like you're whining. Nobody wants to give you money if they think you're, you feel bad and that, that, that you're not going to be around. If you right. make it sound so dire, they don't, 
want to give you money for the next year because they think that's, you know, they're throwing, you know, good money after bad or bad money after good. I never know what that saying is. Um, but <laughs> but but that said, you know, it does make sense. You, you have to sort of rock this fine line. You have to make it sound like you are optimistic amid the pessimism. I mean, it's right. it's just what you said. You well, know, theater now is will the time survive. to be Churchill. It's right. time to be Churchill. Well, I, l- listen, I'm going to say also that I, I wonder if anybody is thinking about us uh, uh, arts journalist because I'm a freelancer. Yeah, right, I am in that right. big economy. Like, what's going to happen? I have no idea. It's it's not great, and we're falling through the cracks. You know, like a lot of people in that gig economy. So, but <laughs> it's always the 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 writers are often not uh, not the first ones. You know, people think about mm, no. in, that, in that case. But well, someone is writing what you're those reports you're reading, and a lot of those someones are freelancers. Mm. What's what's hard for us is even harder. I think out there uh, in the regions where uh, newspapers are already cutting back on arts coverage right and left. And uh, these days, you're going to have a lot of editors saying, why are we writing about this? There aren't any shows. And we've got to have an answer to that question, mm, mm. a good answer. And Well, I wish some foundations you know, would have an answer. I don't know if there are some journalism foundations out there uh, that might, you know, create some, I don't know, like like a, a one-year endowed, you know, fund or grant. Uh, it would be fantastic. Mm. It's something mm. that, that I scoffed at a few years ago when it was first talked about, uh, embedded critics, endowed critics. This is different. The world is different. We're all going to have to start thinking differently now. Well, this is the point in Three on the Isle where we usually switch to going around the table, the virtual table in this case, and talking about things we've seen that we could recommend. Uh, again, this is going to be a little bit different, but perhaps we might all uh, talk a bit about what we're doing instead of going to shows, what has excited us, what has pleased us, uh, what has given us hope. Uh, Elizabeth? Well, uh I'm going to talk about something that's actually really fresh in my mind because uh, I wrote about the Rosie O'Donnell show that happened live, the webcast that happened live last night. That went on for three and a half hours. Oh, tell us, tell, um, tell, tell everybody what this is. So for one night, Rosie O'Donnell resurrected her daytime talk show, which she ran for six seasons, and during which she really became the most vocal, visible uh, fan Broadway could dream of. Uh, she got a lot of shows on the show, on, on you know, a lot of musicals and plays, I think, and uh, on the show. She had actors. She would interview them. You can go on YouTube. There's great clips of her talking to Gwen Ver. I mean, it's just great. Um, so during those moments, she was really a great living billboard for, for Broadway. And she's been a, a stalwart fan f- from decades. So last night, what they did is that she hosted from her garage, uh, pretty much the same way we're doing it right now. And she had a parade of stars. Uh, uh, as I put in my piece, people who would never be free all on the same night because obviously they're working. Mm-hmm. Uh, we're all strangely available uh, <laughs> and hanging out at home. <laughs> um, and so, yeah, there were so many who were ready and, and uh, willing to do it. So some of them just, you know, chatted with her. They did some kind of daytime, you know, talk show type interviews, like little like softball interviews. And uh, others performed, you know, backing themselves up 
uh, or having some invisible partner uh, playing the, <laughs> the guitar off, off screen. It was really charming, and that's what you you know I you realize. Number one, these people have no clue about dealing with their audio on their computers, mm -hmm. like we all do. Right. The sound was so god awful right. a lot of the time. Yes, if, But, if all of you listening to like, us knew what we went through right. in the 30 minutes before we started taping in order to get this thing 30 minutes? Out, well, something like that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Let's let's say it was 30 minutes. Let, let's just, that's the official yeah. version. We'll go with minutes. that. <laughs> I, I, at a zero. <laughs> um, but anyway, so he was lovely. I, I mean, uh, lovely in his kind of like lo-fi, scrappy ambiance. There were some, a lot of like screw-ups. Screw uh, the most memorable one involving Adrian Warren, who was starring in, in the Tina Turner musical. And I think nobody will ever forget that. Frankly, I, I highly recommend you just go on YouTube and watch. From her bathtub, Aaron you have to Warren. say. She was in her bathtub. <laughs> Singing in her bathtub, <laughs> in her full bath, not just a bathtub. She was in a bath. Right. She was in a bath, in a bathing suit. You mean singing it wasn't simply a milk bath? <laughs> no, it was not a milk bath, but it was all, you know, so she was wearing a bathing suit. Uh, and they had to do it three times because the first two times her mic wasn't working. So she, we couldn't hear her. It was kind of fantastic and then there were the people repeating each other like Petty Lupin went rogue and did a song she was not supposed to do <laughs> which created you know a repeat later on and there was almost a three-peat and Kelly O'Hara got out of it anyways it was kind of just kind of wonderful um and off the cuff and everybody just kind of nobody overstayed their welcome this is rare as we know in talk shows Uh, and I don't know, I, I just really love the, this kind of scrappy vibe of it. And it was a benefit for the Actors Fund, which reminds me, uh, also raising money for the Actors Fund is Stes Rudetsky, who's doing a, a show called Stars in the House that is so funny. I highly recommend watching it. Uh, it's, it's very, very funny. Uh, he's kind of the, the savant of, of Broadway musicals. He can just pretty much play whatever you want, just at the slightest cue. Um, he's just incredible. So those two uh, shows for the Actors Fund were uh, just great initiatives. Uh, I was, I'm, I'm a big fan of that. Peter, what are you uh, taking pleasure in right at the moment? Well, you know, I was thinking about what Elizabeth was saying, and I agree. I watched, uh, you know, all three and a half hours or most of the three and a half hours of that show. Uh, you were very active on Twitter. Yeah, last well, I was having I was I was really getting a kick out of like, you know, seeing Adina Menzel's refrigerator and the Judy Garland tissue box on Barry Manilow's piano. You know, those were the moments for me that were more, almost, oh, yes. you know, I yeah. could all the blather about, you know, you know, how much yeah, we yeah, loved yeah. each other. Was you know I could do without, but that was all oh, right. Yeah, yeah. I get that. Uh, but the yeah, real yes, fun you was two, you two can see behind my shoulder and is our Marsden Hartley hanging on the wall. I love that. See, I, this is what humanizes these uh, these these people that we think of as having very cultivated uh, uh, reputations and images. Well, they let down their hair a little bit when they're just talking on the uh, internet. It's just a it's a different experience of who these people are, and I think that is what this format and platform really does best. And I was going mm -hmm. to talk about something I was watching on Netflix or Hulu, but I'm going to talk about instead, you know, I did watch during the week the, the initial Facebook Live uh, things that were going on. And one was Kelly O'Hara singing songs from uh, The King and I, 
which was charming, you know, in very low tech. And then I watched Alice Ripley in her apartment. Just Alice Ripley is sort of just out there as a human being. <laughs> I don't think she'd mind me saying I've interviewed her. And uh, she just was screwing up songs and starting a song and starting halfway through deciding she wasn't going to sing the rest of the song and sort of treating us across this uh, vast expanse of of digital life uh, as if we were her friends. And that's the way it felt like this can be used as an effective uh, form. It's that's what makes it real and and that's what that's what somehow I think theater people could start to figure out themselves if they can yes. on a larger scale. That's the kind of intimacy that playwrights should be taking advantage of uh, in the next months and maybe even producing plays for this for for this form that are specifically for this form, which is what. The stage is about things on the stage work for the stage. Mm -hmm. So so that was that's been kind of glorious. And I will keep looking for those kind of moments. Uh, they're entertaining. Yes. And those and like Rosie, who is a natural at making you feel like she's a person. Uh, that's where this is a delightful. Um, this can be delightful and also makes you realize you're not alone. That's when I felt like I wasn't mm -hmm. alone. When these people were just talking. I really realized I was not alone when I saw how many like technical screw ups there were. Right. It's like stars right. with that, right. you know, with that IT, they don't know what the right. hell they're doing, just like us. Yeah. Just and like God us. knows there may have been many of them who had, you know, press people in the room. I couldn't. Some of them were like clearly not in the room alone. No. But uh, but I, I still think that, you know, like most of them, because some of the setups were like Gloria Estefan looked like she was in her like at a recording studio. You know what I mean? I, oh, yeah. I know. Oh, but you know what? The real question is that everybody was wondering is like, who is Christian Chenoweth hot boyfriend? Oh, that guy? <laughs> but I, was like, I thought it was Christian his... Chenoweth introduces a boyfriend, Josh. Oh, that's what he. Yeah. Josh from Arkansas. Oh, my. Who the reveal yeah. was when he brought something. the dog on. Oh, yeah. my God. Josh and yeah, the dog. Yeah, yeah. I yeah, mean, yeah, yeah. Nice work. Like right yeah, there. Yeah. If I could have liked this like a million times, I would have done right, it. Right. Well, I'll start on a more personal note. Uh, those of you who follow me on the social media will be aware that since we all last got together, uh, Mrs. T, my wife, had a double lung transplant. We got the big call. Incredible. Uh, since then, uh, uh, the hospital where she is, New York Presbyterian, has been closed to visitors. All visitors, spouses included. It had been a week since I had seen her. I was calling you know, twice a day for reports from the nurses. I knew what was going on, but that's very different. And uh, last night, uh, uh, the nurse said, would you like to see her and talk to her? And she pulled out her um, smartphone, hooked up to Skype, and all of a sudden, here I am talking to Mrs. T. Wow. That was something. Wow. That was something. Uh, that, was the best, uh, that was the best program. Uh -huh. I've seen in quite a while. Uh, mostly I've been staying home watching movies, uh, film versions of, of plays in preparation for these columns I'm going to be writing. Um, I talked to you about Abe Lincoln in Illinois and uh, coming up, uh, Boys in the Band in Our Town. Some of the other things I'm planning to write about in future weeks are David Lean's 1945 film of Noel Coward's Blythe Spirit. Uh, which not only preserves several members of the original Sage cast, but also really gives a clear sense of how the play works on stage, much better than most uh, film adaptations. Uh, 
of course, the 1961 film version of A Raisin in the Sun, which, like uh, The Boys in the Band, preserves the entire original cast of the Broadway premiere of this very important play, uh, led by Sidney Poitier. Um, uh, that's a must for this. Um, uh, naturally, A Man for All Seasons, uh, which really has only one person from the stage cast, but of course, it's Paul Schofield, who made very few films, left very few documents of his his ability on stage. And um, I never saw Schofield on stage, but I can't imagine that you're not getting a feel for what it was like watching this movie. I did. And then, did you really? I did. Was was he as good as they say? Well, he's towering, but it was a terrible play. It was. Well, what this, was it? It was an awful English drama. It was. Set, it was in London. It was a, set in a newsroom. It may even have been called the newsroom or something with Eileen oh. Atkins and Vanessa Redgrave. I think it was Vanessa Redgrave. It was definitely Eileen Atkins and Paul Schofield. We and we went. Val and I went because, of course, Paul Schofield. But it was yeah, the right. it was the dullest piece of theater I had seen. <laughs> it was so disappointing. And I I love Paul Schofield. But anyway, I just had to say I had seen Paul Schofield on the stage. He played an editor. He played a dull editor. Well, to choose something a lot more frivolous, I am going to write about the film version of The Odd Couple, uh, in which, of course, mm. the role of Felix Unger was recast. Uh, Jack Lemmon replaced uh, uh, Art Carney. But uh, Walter Matthau's last stage performance uh, as Oscar is preserved in this film, as well as several of the other members of the original cast. So it's not only a very funny movie, but it's a document. I take requests, and Joe Morgenstern, the uh, drama critic or the film critic of the Wall Street Journal, said to me, "Write about Laurence Olivier's Othello," mm. and I intend to do just that—a film, wow. that film that could never be made again because, yep. of course, he plays Othello in blackface. I want to read uh, that. A, a film that is very controversial and a film I haven't looked at for years. Whew. So it'll be interesting to revisit it. Whoa. So that's well. That was a that that was a poison gift. No kidding. So that's what we're that's what we're all up to. Uh, we have missed getting together. Uh, we are so glad that we were able to to make this uh, operation here work technically. We will continue to join with you. We will be looking for guests. Um, we will be hoping to hear from you uh, by email or through the social media, telling us what you'd like to see, giving us questions to ask. Um, uh, but uh, whatever, we're here, and we are all deeply committed to the great cause of, of keeping the fabulous invalid, as, as uh, Kaufman and Hart called it, alive and as well as possible. So on that note, um, we must say goodbye. So I'm Elizabeth Vincentelli. I'm Peter Marks. And I'm Terry Teachout. You have been listening to Three on the Isle, a podcast from New York about theater in America, hosted by American Theater Magazine. Our producer is the matchlessly incomparable Erica Wong. <laughs> and you can follow us on Twitter at Three on the Isle and write to us at Three on the Isle at gmail.com. Both are spelled out. And uh, please let us know what, from the wide range of topics that we can deal with right now, from the comfort of our homes. I think uh, we did pretty well today. And, <laughs> right? and, and uh, from your kitchen or your living room or your bedroom uh, or your office, we'll, we'll listen, we'll hear you, we'll be with you again soon on the <laughs> on aisle. The virtual aisle. <laughs> <laughs>